It's the Talk of Iowa Book Club from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe. We've been reading Kindred by Octavia Butler. The book was first published in 1979, and it takes place in 1976, our nation's bicentennial. It is a sci-fi novel, but it's also historical fiction. The main character is Dana. She is a 26-year-old black woman living in Los Angeles trying to make it as a writer. Her husband, Kevin, is also a writer. He is white and a little older than Dana. As they're settling into a new house together, Dana finds herself suddenly transported through time and space to pre-Civil War Maryland. In the past, she encounters her ancestors and has to figure out how to survive and how to help her ancestors survive as a young black woman in a slave state. Our expert readers, artist Akwi Inji and Cedar Rapids High School student Amaya Dawson will join us in a few minutes. With me now is Lakeisha Johnson. She's an associate professor and department chair of gender, women's and sexuality studies at Grinnell College. Welcome, Lakeisha. Hi, Charity. Thank you so much for being here. And would you start us off by reading just a small section of the book? This is from early in the novel, from the chapter The River, and it's At that scene that I mentioned, Kevin and Dana are moving into their home together. They're putting books away on a shelf. And that's when Dana is first pulled into the past. I bent to push him another box full, then straightened quickly as I began to feel dizzy, nauseated. The room seemed to blur and darken around me. I stayed on my feet for a moment, holding on to a bookcase and wondering what was wrong. Then finally, I collapsed to my knees. I heard Kevin make a wordless sound of surprise, heard him ask, what happened? I raised my head and discovered that I could not focus on him. Something is wrong with me, I gasped. I heard him move toward me, saw a a blur of gray pants and, and blue shirt. Then just before he would have touched me, he vanished. The house, the books, everything vanished. Suddenly I was outdoors, kneeling on the ground beneath trees. I was in a green place. I was at the edge of a woods. Before me was a wide, tranquil river, and near the middle of the river was a child splashing, screaming, drowning. I reacted to the child in trouble. Later, I could ask questions, try to find out where I was, what had happened. Now I went to help the child. That is how Dana's adventures begin in Kindred by Octavia Butler. And Lakeisha, tell me first, what is your relationship with this novel? Oh, wow. I'm a big fan of Octavia Butler's. Um, I was introduced to her work. I would say, I think I was in high school when I read Wild Seed, you know, appreciated just as a fan. Um, And then later in graduate school, I had the pleasure to take a class with Valerie Lee at The Ohio State University and she taught Kindred in her course, specifically on Black women's literature and thinking about issues of gender and racial justice. Um, so it, it was, you know, those were the two sort of introductions. But I think now her work means even more to me, um, being a professor. And actually, I, I taught Parable of the Sower this um, past term. And so I just think that there's so much important information about like what it means to be a Black woman in the United States in the past, um, in the present, and perhaps in the future. So it, it means quite a bit to me right now. I will admit that the first time that I heard of Octavia Butler was when she died. 
I read an obituary and I was like, who is this woman? How have I never heard of her work? So for people who haven't had that introduction, Lakeisha, who is Octavia Butler? Oh, gosh. She's she's a giant. I mean, or was a giant, um, should I say, although I think that her legacy um, outlives her. I mean, she was the first black woman to integrate a very white and male science fiction community. You know, uh, as I was looking at sort of how she talks about herself or how she talked about herself, um, you know, she talks about all the sacrifices that her mother made in order for her to become a writer. And it was her mother talking to her, you know, at, at the age of like nine or 10 about the fact that she could be a writer. And um, I found this interview that she had with Jelani Cobb in the um, 19, I think it was like 1994. If you don't mind, I could just read this sure. quote, which I think is a great summary of like who she is because, and it's from her own perspective. She says, who am I? I am a 47-year-old writer who can remember being a 10-year-old writer and who expects to someday be an 80-year-old writer. I am also comfortably asocial, a hermit, a pessimist if I'm not careful, a feminist, a Black, a former Baptist, an oil and water combination of ambition, laziness, insecurity, certainty, and drive, right? And I just... You know, I read that again today and I was just thinking, wow, um, not that far from uh, 47. Um, I read her work with awe, but I also, you know, it's like bittersweet because I just think of like, what, what more could she have given us? Although I think that what she already provided is so rich. I also think about how unlikely it was that she got published, that she broke into this white male dominated world of science fiction and that we even got her voice, which also makes me think what other voices never broke through. But I am so grateful that hers did. And I think part of the reason that it took me so long to be introduced to her is because I'm not a sci-fi reader. I think that that maybe obscured her from my view for a long time. But I know, Lakeisha, you're a huge sci-fi fan. And and these Mm -hmm. these books are extraordinary sci-fi books. They're also extraordinary books, period. Mm -hmm. Um, I grew up on Star Trek. My mother is a Trekkie, you know. So, I mean, I'm very familiar with the sci-fi genre, mostly television, you know, as I was growing up. But the only reason why I think I'm so intrigued by sci-fi now is because of Octavia Butler. It was my introduction into sci-fi. So I can't imagine, like, this is how I judge all other science fiction, you know, Um, whereas other people might be more familiar with the canonical, you know, white male genre. Well, and and as I said, this book is is sci-fi. It is also historical fiction. And I saw a conversation, people saying, well, I don't really get into sci-fi. I'm not sure if I want to read it. And and part of me wanted to say, well, would you dismiss Jane Eyre because it's sci-fi? Would you dismiss Wuthering Heights because it's sci-fi? I mean, it's it's just mm-hmm. it's a great book with some magical realism or, you know, and with yes. time travel. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. absolutely. And, and the time travel is so powerful here. I mean, help us understand kind of the uh, the core question of this novel, because that time travel helps us explore it in some really powerful ways. Oh, gosh, this is a tough one, because I think there are so many things that the novel asks us. Um, 
But I'm thinking I'm, the question that I'm coming up with based on my experience living during a pandemic, during this huge um, movement for Black Lives, the question that came to me when I read it again, um, after reading Parable of the Sower and some other neo-slave narratives was, you know, am I my brother's keeper? And not just am I my brother's keeper, but am I my brother's keeper in the context of a system of oppression, degradation, torture, you know, racial, racial and gender violence, you know, in that context, am I my brother's keeper? And I think the question is also my sister's keeper. Um, and in this case, we're talking across racial lines as well, right? We're not simply talking about a community that we imagine as Black and enslaved, right? There's a lot more going on here in terms of who my brother or my sister is um, in this context. I think we can reveal that 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 little boy that was in the river drowning is a, a little white boy, Rufus Whalen, who turns out to be one of her great, great grandfathers. So this is one of her ancestors, and she is pulled back in time, she discovers, to protect him, to keep him alive, to, I guess, to protect her family line and uh, secure her own existence. But now here she is, connected intimately to this boy and later a man who is part of a family of slave owners. Yes. And I think it's a metaphor for the family drama that we find ourselves in as African-Americans in America. And it's, it's an old story. And I think now, given the pandemic and given everything that's been happening around police brutality and all those things, it's even more important for us to grapple with who we are to each other, right? And what is our responsibility? To what extent does my survival depend on my relationship to other citizen subjects in the United States? Yeah, and we will explore that theme a little bit deeper and, and so many others in just a moment. We'll introduce our other expert readers into this conversation. With me now is Lakeisha Johnson. She's an associate professor and department chair of gender, women's, and sexuality studies at Grinnell College. We are talking about Kindred by Octavia Butler. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club from Iowa Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's the Talk of Iowa Book Club from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe. We have been reading Kindred by Octavia Butler. Published in 1979, it tells the story of a young black writer named Dana. She lives in Los Angeles with her husband, Kevin, and finds herself pulled into the past repeatedly 
to a slave-holding plantation in Maryland that is home to two of her ancestors. With me to talk about this book is Lakeisha Johnson. She is an associate professor and department chair of gender, women's, and sexuality studies at Grinnell College. Our expert readers are also here now. Akwi Inji is an artist, poet, and storyteller who lives in Cedar Rapids. She's the creator of the Remoir Project, an initiative designed to tell true personal stories through textile art. Hello, Akwi. Hi, Charity. Hi, Lakeisha. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here with you all. Well, thank you so much for being here. And Akwi, you actually used to teach this book to high school students. So tell me a little bit about why you chose to teach Kindred and what, how your classes responded to it. Yeah, it was, a, you know, it was such an accessible book from a variety of angles. I taught it in African-American literature and history, as well as U.S. humanities. And sometimes it was a book that um, I offered as a choice for my L.A. 10 students. And it was because it was it was an opportunity to come at a, ver- a variety of themes from a couple of different angles. If our primary focus was on themes of race or gender or power, we could take that angle with an opportunity to also discuss slavery, right? And then if it was African-American history and culture, we could go at it from the angle of history first and then talk about these themes of power. So it was just a really accessible um, tool to, first of all, get students engaged in really well done, well written, beautiful, poignant, and important literature that addressed a variety of themes and was Um, a really accessible opportunity to take a close look at race relations in two completely different time periods. Well, and this time we recruited you to to read it with us and then recruited your daughter, 14 years old, who we will introduce in just a second to be another expert reader on the show. So you got to read it with your daughter. Is there anything this time through that, that hits you in a different way? You know, it was really a pleasure to read this time through without the context of of then having to to teach it, quote unquote, in a classroom. Um, There were themes that I was I was able to immerse myself in in more depth than I would have probably, I think, when I was teaching it eight, 10 years ago. And then being able to um, recognize that this is an opportunity to have conversations with a 14 year old, uh, my daughter, in the context of themes like home and family, uh, has been a real pleasure. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, Amaya, we will bring you into the conversation now. Amaya Dawson will be a freshman at Cedar Rapids, Washington in the fall. She is also Aqui's daughter. Hello, Amaya. Hi. This is your first time reading Kindred. Give me your reaction to it i will say that uh the biggest thing i felt while reading it was just being so appreciative of the fact that i got to have a like deeper understanding of the slave era and like a whole bunch of just know um learning about a whole bunch of uh different things that i don't don't think i ever would have thought about before like it almost felt like putting on a vr headset it wasn't like i was there there but like it like it felt like i understood it better than maybe doing like a written assignment in a classroom about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It sort of plunges you back into the past. And we will talk about how Butler uses empathy in so many different and interesting ways in this novel. But uh, Maya, so it felt like, although you've learned about this part of Black history, this felt like you learned more, even though you weren't reading a history. Yeah. 
it felt like I could really, really know what it was like, especially like back then, especially because it went into so much detail about a lot of things that probably wouldn't have been brought up in a while talking about it in a classroom or something like that. It just felt so real. I think uh, in remembering the classrooms that I used to sit in, one of the first things that happened in those classrooms when we learned about slavery and this period in our country and and other terrible atrocities, like when we learned about the Holocaust, you know, there would be this conversation of, well, if I lived then, I would have done this. I never would have stood for that. I never would have tolerated this. And Amaya, I think in, in some ways, this book is a response to that that kind of thinking. Well, if I lived during that time, this is how I would have responded. I mean, Dana and Kevin, who later also travels back in time, they suddenly are faced with those decisions, aren't they? A very common question that people bring up that doesn't make much sense is, oh, why didn't they just run away? Why didn't they fight back and stuff like that? And I I, I remember in earlier years, I, I was thinking the same thing and reading this book really like shows you this is why it's because like doing that is risking your life like on a huge level so like it's sometimes just easier to play it safe right well and and as uh, we'll talk about there are so many different ways that power is wielded in this novel i i want to talk before we really dive into that i want to talk about the main character dana who, as I mentioned, she's a 26-year-old black writer, and she's very independent. She has very little family. Her her parents have passed away long ago, and she was raised mostly by her aunt and uncle. And so here she is. She's on her own. She falls in love with Kevin, and, and during the book, we get flashbacks into the early part of their relationship. But Lakeisha, let's talk about Dana and, and who she is, because I, she's such an incredibly compelling person, I feel. Oh yeah, she's really compelling. And again, I think I, because my my work centers around representations of Black womanhood, I often turn to like when I when I see a character like Dana, I want to say, okay, so what archetype of Black womanhood are we looking at here, right? To some extent, I think Octavia Butler plays around with the idea of the strong Black woman, right? So there's a both a positive and a negative aspect to that controlling image of Black womanhood that, you know, it is Black women who have the strength to survive, you know, these horrible situations and to actually be the force of salvation for others, right? You know, so that narrative was very much, it has been very much out in the public sphere. And so for me, I see Dana as an opportunity for us to see a strong Black female character who is complex, who is who is strong, but who suffers incredibly um, in the face of racialized and gendered violence, right? And again, I, there are many examples of this in African-American literature, but it, it is interesting to, to see how Octavia Butler crafts a character who has a very, I mean, there are, there are very nuanced representations of Black women all over African-American history, but again, in the face of this fantastical you know, experience of being transported into the past, right? And not really know, and having no control over that, right? Um, and, and so in terms of power, right? Like she, she shows how power works 
in a system where you have white men who own property at the top <laughs> and black people at the bottom. We get to explore the society on different levels with the, the white men, the white women, the free black people. Mm-hmm. the enslaved people. We get to explore this this culture in such an in-depth way. But I think one of the things that's interesting to me is that Dana is idealized by a couple of the men that she encounters in her life. But she seems to have so much clarity of understanding of herself, of her strengths, and of her weaknesses that I, I felt like that was a really beautiful part of how she was portrayed. Akwi, do you have anything to add? I think that with Dana, I mean, one of the things, Lakeisha, you just mentioned um, her her lack of control and lack of power, even over time travel. And I just I, I just think there are so many layers of um, of that kind of uh, exploration of power and control that even something like that doesn't have control over time travel, doesn't have control over where she's placed when she's when she travels through time. So I just I, I think it's interesting because yes, those things that you were just describing in terms of this black female protagonist are true. And there's so many ways that Butler disrupts that that archetype, you know, and I think quite intentionally with, with Dana as well, that disruption is what happens when so much of these social constructs are stripped away from us. Right. What happens really to who we are and to into our concepts of power, even with this particular sort of archetype, when some of these social constructs are stripped away? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what do we take with us to survive the transport? Right. Like I was just rereading the part about the bag where she's not really sure if this is going to be the last time that she's taken back or if there'll be another time. And, and she's had more time with Kevin in in the 70s and he's like why do you keep holding on to that bag and it's like excuse me as a black woman i don't have a choice like that bag that that toolkit is always at the ready right because you never know what situation you're going to be brought into that will require you it could mean your survival right your literal life and i think you know when you think about what happened to brianna taylor I mean, she literally was taken out of this world in a split second by agents of the state, right? In the same way that, you know, Dana is just in a split second, her whole reality has changed. And part of that func- is a part of that is a, um, a result of her um, embodying Black womanhood in a context where racism where gender violence, where homophobia, where all the different isms are actively engaging us, right? And she can't escape that in either time period. Yeah, yeah, there is no. Well, and what you were just describing, her having to sort of explain to Kevin why why she won't let go of this bag, there was so much of that sort of subtle education happening from Dana to Kevin. And it started at the very beginning um, and so just even that is, you know, to what degree is this experience just in the context of race and gender, gender so disparate, we're constantly having to educate the other. Mm-hmm. Yep. Even, even those who are close, who, who, who are family. I mean, Kevin is her family. She has chosen him as family, but he's also white and he's also male. Mm-hmm. And those 
dynamics of who he is are constantly at play at every level. Mm-hmm. For yeah. me, reading the book for the second time and the, the first time through, because it's an amazing read. In addition to all of these things that we're breaking down, these different themes and elements, it is a story that just pulls you along. And I found myself the first time I read it, I read it so fast because I I wanted to know what was going to happen next. And in the second time I read it, I was able to take a breath and, and look more closely at what was going on. So when Dana is communicating to Kevin in 1976, talking about race in their culture. And he's a man who believes in equality, who believes in equity and and is still incredibly blind to the racism that she lives with every day. Thinking about Kevin and Dana in that culture, the way people treated them, the things that were happening, the way Kevin acted to Dana. What was your reaction to that relationship? And and really, it felt felt very much like the 1970s to me. There are two things that I had like separate reactions to. The first thing being like how how much Dana has to explain to him about like stuff like that. Like like especially the bag thing. There are a lot of things where I think it'll be like common sense, something everyone should know, especially in regards to things like race and ge- gender and stuff like that. And then I realize it's common sense to me because it's something I like understand just because of who I am. I guess th- throughout the book, I just started um, realizing it showcased a lot on how there were so many things he was kind of uneducated unca- ed- about. Right. He just... had some pretty big blind spots, although he was yeah. he was well-meaning. Did you like him? Yeah, I liked him a lot. I liked him as a character. He's he's well he's a well-meaning dude, and a lot of, and I think a lot of people in real life are like that as well, where they're well-meaning, but as he said, they have blind spots. Amaya Dawson, here along with Akwi Inji and Lakeisha Johnson. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club from Iowa Public Radio. We've been reading Kindred by Octavia Butler. It was published in 1979, and it's about Dana. She is a young black writer living in Los Angeles with her husband, Kevin. She finds herself pulled into the past repeatedly to a slaveholding plantation in Maryland. It is home to two of her ancestors, and she has to not only figure out how to survive, but how to keep them alive as well. With me to talk about this incredible novel is Akwi Inji. She is an artist, poet, and storyteller who lives in Cedar Rapids. Maya Dawson is here. She will be a freshman at Cedar Rapids, Washington in the fall. She is also Akwi's daughter. And Lakeisha Johnson is an associate professor and department chair of gender, women's, and sexuality studies at Grinnell College. And I want to talk about power now because... Uh, Dana Dana gets to experience this power dynamic uh, in so many ways. And I feel like Octavia Butler illustrates it almost like nobody else ever has. I mean, she did just explores it so deeply. And Aqui, I mean, of course, you have the basic power structure. We know that in the antebellum South, white men held all the power. They held the land 
and they owned people and basically they owned their wives as well. So these are the people with all of this power, but it's so much more complicated than that. Well, and it's so much more complicated because it depends on what type of power you're talking about. There's so many different forms of power, intellectual power, emotional power, um, economic power, physical power, and, and even physical power in the sense of not only just physical strength, but also the physical power to give and take life. And so there's all these different forms of power. And then the way those forms of power interplay in the context of race, gender, time period, class, right? And it's all so dynamic. I mean, that's the thing that throughout the entire novel, depending on where she is and when she is, Dana is just one example. Every single character experiences this dynamic energy of power, even in the context of location on the plantation. I just get so fascinated when I think about the different ways that Butler explores levels of power and how that power um, plays out depending on these other sort of intersectionalities. Well, and the fact that we see um, people who are enslaved, but we also see free Black people, and we see how the whole structure of society enslaves the free Black people as well, even though they are not, quote, slaves. Their movement is also controlled. They are in danger at every moment. And and we feel that viscerally, Lakeisha. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I was I was thinking we probably should talk more a little bit more about Alice, who is also Dana's um, other relative in this in this time that she's um, in this place that she's transported to. And her status as a free black person is placed in jeopardy by the fact that she has fallen in love with a man who is enslaved. Right. And so she is able to be a mother. She is able to choose motherhood and know that her children will not be born um, in captivity, right? And so it becomes an issue of economics, you know, um, for the the white slaveholder, um, seeing that relationship as a threat to his economic power, right? Who gets to be a mother? You know, how is your status as a mother then passed on to your child. And obviously during that time period, she was able to lose her status as a free person because she chose to facilitate the escape of her husband. Then she became enslaved herself, right? It's just because she had violated the rules in terms of, you know, how far a person of African descent could go in the context of slavery. Yeah. Well, and Amaya, give me your reaction to that, because it was just one thing after another thing after another thing that just demonstrated how tenuous any kind of happiness or autonomy that a Black person in that society could have. How did you react to that? I reacted with great interest to just like how many different ways different people had power over others. The one that interested me the most was the fact that Dana actually kind of had a level of intellectual power over specifically Tom. Tom Wayland is the father of this family. Rufus is yeah. the son yeah. that, that Dana is going back to save. But Tom Wayland is the, the patriarch. And, and so we know Dana's smarter than Tom. Yeah. 
And Tom's kind of, yeah, he's kind of a dumb man. In some How did Tom feel about that, Amaya? I think he was mostly envious. And there's so much desperation <laughs> around maintaining power or maintaining control, even if it's a perceived control, you know, towards the end, that whole theme of don't leave me and the degree to which Rufus will go to ensure that the, the women who he thinks he loves um, won't leave him. It's just, it's, there's so much desperation that emerges when a person, the, the, the powers that be uh, recognize a potential loss of control. And even in present day, I think we can see that playing out in a variety of different arenas, including political arenas. So yeah, don't leave me and stay in your place. Like stay right. exactly where you need to be and I have to feel comfortable as you exist in that right. Make me feel good about it. Exactly. It's those, it's those moments when Black women, people of color, whoever's in the marginalized group, when we start to move outside those strict boundaries in institutions where we are. Um, and again, I'm thinking of the plantation system as a kind of institution of white supremacy, right? When we start to move beyond that, when we think that we can, exists outside of that, when we think we can run for president, when we think we can make sure that everyone has the right to vote. I mean, these are all things that are happening all around us. There's this struggle. Um, and in some ways, I do think that people could be really benefit from looking at the psychological portrait of Rufus and his father, Tom Waitlin, as an example of how whiteness as property corrupts and, and and does horrible things to the white male psyche, right? Yeah. Um, well, and, and let's talk about Rufus because, okay, he was he was this child the first time that she went back. He was a child the second time she went back. So so she saw him grow up. But one of the the most powerful things about this novel is that Octavia Butler makes Rufus, who would be so easy to demonize and dismiss as a monster, a man that we can understand. She creates this empathy between the reader and Rufus and be between Dana and Rufus. Even Dana cannot fully hate Rufus and we really want her to and we want to, to fully hate Rufus, I think. At least that was my feeling as well. But it kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the first, that gut reaction to thinking about slavery of, oh, as a white person, I would never participate in something that monstrous. But by creating that empathy with with Rufus, Butler shows us how any one of us could be part of something that monstrous. There, there's the potential for that, right? And I think with Kevin and Rufus, I, I wanted to really just be allowed to despise Rufus and be allowed to see Kevin as an ally. And it's just certainly not that simple for any of us. Um, and I think that it just in terms of the, the writing, the way she over time throughout the novel created opportunity for the reader's um, perception through Dana uh, of Kevin and Rufus to be blurred literally at times as she was waking up from these various episodes, she couldn't quite tell which white man she was looking at as she was waking up, if it was Rufus or Kevin, and also couldn't quite tell where she was in the context of home. And so uh, I think to some degree, it's 
it's a really interesting um, exploration of what are we what are we each capable of becoming in in the context of of our times. But I also think it's a challenge, right? Just you don't have to become a person of your time. Kevin didn't actually become Rufus when he was there for five years. Although um, Dana was afraid that he would, but he did he not. Was. Yeah. The the unfettered access to white supremacy and power can thoroughly corrupt you. It can. Yes. And Rufus particularly, his desperation to maintain power in the various ways he already had it, but then this lack of confidence in the areas where he knew he was less powerful, like that intellectual um, arena that Amaya was talking about. I think about the fact that um, two of these times when Dana has to save him, the river and the fire, the way I read that, he's trying to manipulate even the natural elements of the earth, you know, and, and to what degree does that failure um, align with a failure of him to essentially dying, but even Dana having power over whether or not Rufus lives, she's enslaved by that sense of responsibility to her lineage. I mean, there's just so many elements of enslavement and empowerment. And to what degree, going back, Lakeisha, to what you were describing, am I my brother's keeper in all contexts? Are we bound to others because we are directly connected to one another? One's, one's life, one's well-being does directly connect to our own, you know? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And even when it's clear to her that her, she will survive, that her lineage has been established, because Hagar has been born, she still explained, she has to explain to Kevin, it's not that, it's not that easy for you to say, okay, now you can get rid of, you can get rid of him. You don't have to save him anymore. And she's like, but do you understand what happens to all the other black people on that plantation if he doesn't survive? Do you understand what that means for other black people? So then it becomes a question of what is my responsibility as an African-American, not just to my family, but to my larger African-American community that will have to deal with the consequences of my action. You so have anyway. already given so many great examples of why this book feels absolutely relevant right now. I, I want to read one line. I, I was so struck by this because this is something that that is said by a character back in the 18 teens and it sounds like it could have been said today here in the United States and that is when Dana travels back in time again she takes with her a book about the history of slavery Rufus discovers this book and he says you know this is the biggest load of abolitionist trash I've ever seen and she said well it's not abolitionist this is history this was written a hundred years after slavery was abolished and he says then why the hell are they still complaining about it? And I felt like this, you know, this was supposed to, to be said 200 years ago, but it read as if it could have been said yesterday. Thank you all so much for reading with me and for having this incredible conversation. Akwi Inji is an artist, poet, and storyteller who lives in Cedar Rapids. Her daughter, Amaya Dawson, will be a freshman at Cedar Rapids, Washington. And Lakeisha Johnson is an associate professor and department chair of gender, women's, and sexuality studies at Grinnell College. Thank you to Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City for providing copies of Kindred for our readers. 
The Talk of Iowa Book Club podcast is produced by me and Matt Alvarez. Our executive producer is Katherine Perkins. You can join our community of readers on Facebook. Search for IPR's Talk of Iowa Book Club. This podcast is a production of Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe. See you next time. <laughs>